Hey, welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? So this week we're talking to Michael Brooks. Before I introduce this episode, for the benefit of new listeners, we thought we'd tell you a little bit about what we're doing here. So our starting point is at the end of history, in which Western liberal democracy was held to be the final form of human government, is now over. Instead, we're seeing the crumbling of the technocratic managerialism that ruled Europe and North America until 2016. The common sense of liberal politics has been upended by Trump and by Brexit. We're watching the decline of American hegemony play out in regions around the world. And the rising powers everyone expected to take over have refused to do so. No one's in control. And the pundits and the polls keep getting it wrong. So at the end of the end of history, they've got nothing left to say. On this podcast, we're charting what's emerging and what comes next. We're using a range of contributors to scan the globe high and low to understand the politics, economics, and culture of the new era. There's a new show every fortnight, with more regular updates should events require. So the episode after this one in a couple of days is going to go deep on what's going on in Zimbabwe. Today, though, we're talking to Michael Brooks, who's involved with a number of podcasts about politics and cultural trends. First, we're going to explore the role of alternative media today. There's a lot of new projects out there which, like us, are trying to get some political clarity on our confused times. Then we're going to move on to talk a little bit about the US left today, the growth of the Democratic Socialists of America, as well as the campus free speech wars and so on. And finally, a bit about Trump's foreign policy and Iran-Saudi relations, an issue which we're definitely going to come back to in a separate podcast as well. Pleased to have you with us. Hello, politics, my old friend. All right, Michael, you're the host of the Majority Report and the Two Dope Boys and a Podcast podcast, uh, which looks at cultural trends. And now you've started up doing your own show, The Michael Brooks Show. Can you give us the gist of what that's about and, and what you aim to do with it? So just one, I got just a brief uh, correction. I'm a, I'm a contributing co-host on the Majority Report. Uh, I do that with, with Sam Cedar. Um, but I, I launched uh, Michael Brooks' show in August. And, uh, you know, it's definitely mainly on the political side, although I think um, the work that I've done and do with Two Dope Boys and the sort of cultural intelligence work informs it. Uh, but what we're doing, what I'm doing with Michael Brooks' show at least, especially in the, in the premium content, but I think it informs all of the content. I really wanted to find a bridge between doing, I think that if you can make content entertaining and provocative, the audience will give you lead, leeway to get pretty historical and analytical. So it's a pretty deep dive show. Um, there's a lot of focus on foreign policy and there's a lot of um, focus, I would say, on making a pretty overtly um, socialist argument. Um, and sometimes that can mean potentially jump, jumping into more kind of deeper theory, um, but also just more generally as a kind of materialist perspective and not necessarily just a progressive one for kind of assessing culture and politics and how it works and intervening in everything from how we understand the relationship with Saudi Arabia to identity and free speech uh, controversies and the future of the safety net. 
Um, and then in these illicit histories and primers that I do, there's a lot of uh, looking at things like CIA destabilization of Jamaica in the 1970s, as an example, and Michael Manley's project. I'm trying to give people an entertaining um, and broad sense of kind of leftist political literacy and also um, understanding of different stories as much as possible through understanding, you know, gangsters and drugs and intelligence networks that kind of can actually help you understand uh, this kind of origins of how the modern world works. So it, it's been going really well. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's what's going on. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And I think there seems to be, I mean, I don't think it, 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 it um, to make this contrast, it doesn't uh, demean your show in any way. It's, I think there seems to be a rising wave of this sort of approach to alternative media, um, kind of oh, one which tries to be like broad and deep. Um, and it, it seems that this um, this kind of inserts itself into a period where there's, although there's a clear polarization in U.S. mainstream media, um, between kind of liberal and conservative, there seems to be a space outside this kind of actually what ends up being quite a narrow polarization um, for discussing left politics on various different platforms. Um, and basically, do you think what currently exists out there, not just your show, but but other ones um, online, primarily in the United States, uh, do you think uh, what's out there is kind of filling that space? Well, I, I think obviously, first and foremost, my show. <laughs> no, just kidding. I, no, I think that uh, uh, if you give me, permit me a little American style self promotion there, um, I think that my show's the best. Always good. Always good. Saying it's the best. It's the best. It's true. It's true. Uh, Trump has infected all of our speech patterns here. Uh, <laughs> real corruption. But no, real corruption I mean, of speech. Oh, without a doubt. I, I notice it all the time. It's actually it's kind of extraordinary the sort of speech pathologies that among other things this fucking asshole um has seeped into our consciousness i hope it's okay i swear no, uh, absolutely you can you can even drop in you can uh, even drop in an impression if you want oh <laughs> uh, that, that'll probably happen, probably happen. <laughs> excellent i would yeah don't worry there's i'm sure that that's on the way i think that yes there definitely is part of a broader wave here of um of, of left content. And I think what it boils down to is a couple of different uh, variables. I think one, uh, there's certainly people who are, you know, uh, I, I actually, it's funny, I'm always kind of banging on in an American context to not look at things through generational lenses and look at them through more class lenses. But that being said, I think that and a lot of this was obviously was in fact distilled by the support for Bernie Sanders. Uh, you know, people under 35, if you can just make a kind of broad sort of young category of people, um, have really grown up with a sense that first of all, the kind of brutality of, of, you know, for lack of a better term, just neoliberal policy, um, has affected them more broadly than any other generation previously, right? So maybe like in the Reagan era as an example, this stuff is being deployed, but it's primarily hitting black and Hispanic communities and you know poor marginalized white people. Uh, and then in the 90s, uh, the structure was being laid in place to increase inequality. Uh, and in fact, it was increasing inequality and deregulation and Wall Street and tech bubbles and everything else, but at the same time, uh, and I know this as a kind of a 90s kid, uh, even though it didn't really filter to my family. My family was, in fact, very poor. Uh, 
there was just a much broader sense of kind of access to prosperity. But people who, uh, you know, especially if you were graduating college, say, in 2008, right, around the financial crisis, you have a whole generation of people who, quote unquote, did the right thing and might even come from a lot of privilege. And they're experiencing, you know, all of the things that these economics and policies are designed for us to experience. Lower wages, shrinking prospects, and much greater, greater concentration. So there is a whole market of people who really have an appetite for actual politics and not just day in and day out, you know, partisan controversies and uh, cultural signifying. Yeah. I mean, uh, and I that's think, uh, the kind of macro insight. Yeah, no, I think that that's something that British listeners will be familiar with and something that we've discussed on this podcast before in relation to Britain, um, that the kind of prospects, even for, for the sort of middle class has, I mean, British uh, middle class in the British sense of the word rather than the American one, um, which is a, a little bit more well-to-do, I suppose, than the, than the American version. But yep. um, but in any case, uh, that there's a sort of downwardly mi- uh, mobile middle class, um, which is feeling this quite acutely, and which to some extent led to the to the Cor- Corbyn surge. Um, yep. And I For guess sure. there is a, and, and a, a, a desire also, I mean, with the kind of, um, with the sort of eruptions that we've seen over the past year and a half especially, um, but it goes back a little bit further than that, Um of a need for political clarity at a time when the kind of answers don't seem to be there from from mainstream media, many established media, which uh, in which there's a, a hell of a lot of lack of trust. Um, and so I guess that's where that's where that gap uh, opens up. And I mean, something that we wish to fill as well in, in also trying to address the kind of the crisis of our times and the sense that kind of history's yeah, returned. That's exactly right. Yeah, history has returned. And I think that the other kind of paradox that's really interesting, and this does speak very much directly to my show, and I actually even think I think your show to an extent as well. Although you guys are more uh, uh, polished in some ways, you say slightly few reckless things than I say, um, but certainly like you know, Chapo and Struggle Session and any number of these kind of shows that I can name, a lot of which I think are very good. The other kind of paradox is that. Um, and, and I want to be really clear, this has nothing to do with policy or belief. In fact, I think people like us on the actual left are uh, more thoroughly and seriously committed to not only economic liberation, but also the social emancipation movements and seriously structurally addressing things like racism and misogyny, homophobia, and so on. Uh, but I do think that, you know, there was another kind of paradoxical appetite of like, I want an actual politics that really meets me materially and explains my world because history has returned. And then conversely, you know, maybe I also have a sense of humor and maybe I also want, you know, comedy and maybe I don't want everything that is sort of assigned under a left umbrella to just be like a sort of constant game of sort of social matters and word mining and kind of like, you know, performing wokeness is what I would call it. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that there was this other kind of like interest in let's really actually deal with problems and then let's also, you know, get back to some comedy and some flair and some entertainment. And I guess, frankly, for being blunt, you know, ironically for all of our socialism and everything, kind of a cool factor, you know, because for competing in the terrain we're in right now, it's it's kind of important, I think, to 
you know, I've been doing a lot of work on exposing and destroying the alt-right, and there's so many different facets of it, but part of it is really getting back seriously into the mockery and ridicule game, and also having a materialist analysis of things like racism so that we're not just on a purely signifying an identity field. And I think that there's also a big opp- appetite for that synthesis as well. Yeah, I think the, uh, the the kind of mainstream treatments of politics suffer from being simultaneously sort of unserious and light and not really grappling with issues while at the same time being incredibly po-faced and uptight. Um, and I guess yes. we're trying to do uh, kind of united and at least trying to do something which is the op- which would be the opposite of that. Um, and I think exactly. the way you put it, the way you put it, is uh, quite a nice way to encapsulate it. Um, but let's move on actually to to sort of U.S. politics in a more um, deliberate sense. I think George, you wanted to ask some questions. Yeah, so just um, uh, building on some of your comments on uh, on Bernie and maybe the sort of cool factor of the left at the moment, mm-hmm. um, there seemed to be a bit of a breakthrough for left wing Democrats and the Democratic Socialists of America, the DSA, in the recent U.S. elections. Um, what do you make of this? Yeah. Do you think the idea of a breakthrough might be overstating it? No, I, I mean, I think it's I think the breakthrough there's there's well, there's three different things to note about this. I mean, number one. There's pretty good polling about the idea of socialism amongst younger people in America, right? Now, part of the reason that that polling is good is because, you know, conservatives went around running, you know, running around for years calling Barack Obama a socialist. And one of the kind of funny kind of effects of them saying that was that, you know, by calling a centrist, center-right even, Democrat, socialist. It basically, for a lot of younger people, they were like, oh, so being a socialist means that you're sort of like a vaguely decent human being who <laughs> like, <laughs> would like to make healthcare a bit more accessible, you know, versus what? You know, like being a sociopath? So I think that there is a broader cultural ferment in which the word, both in good and potentially bad ways, has kind of lost some of its potency. Um, and then also some of the fear factor, because, you know, were a couple another example like this in 2013 when Bill de Blasio was first running for mayor of New York City and you know Bill de Blasio is uh, I mean he of the options he's the best person who be in who should be in that job right now but he is by no means some great inspiring leftist crusader right but to his credit he was he did run an early inequality campaign and the last the last weeks of it uh, they tried to smear him with being a Sandinista supporter and then in the 80s. And to his credit, he was like, yes, I did support the Sandinistas in the 1980s, and I was inspired by their you know, revolution and so on. And, of course, people like me were like, yeah, I wish, right? <laughs> I wish there was more Sandinista in, you know, in de Blasio. But the, thing, the way it played out, though, is that it was like 90% of people have no idea what you're talking about. They don't know about the Sandinistas, and they don't care one way or another. And then there would be people like me who might be were aware of it, and they'd be like, "Yeah, I would hope that if you were politically aware in the '80s, you supported the Sandinistas." You know, are you kidding me? Uh, so I, I think just broad, broadly, the the brand has changed. Now, specifically to your question, yes, I mean, those results were really positive for left wing candidates and for the Democratic and for DSA candidates. They were more broadly, you know, positive for Democrats. And like, as an example, the governor of Virginia, gubernatorial elected Virginia is, uh, you know, very conservative Democrat. Uh, But even there, you could see positive signs, because frankly, uh, as a center right Democrat, 
uh, who said disgusting things about sanctuary cities, which is an immigration issue here. He was also primarily running on college, uh, uh, on, on free college in Virginia and expanding health care, uh, which already shows you that the kind of milieu of politics has shifted really significantly. And the last point I'd make, this is another thing that I think just even a couple of extra years in politics or a little bit more historical awareness. Like there's people who came in with Bernie um, and they're very enraged about the DNC and they see this kind of sense of robbery and not being able to beat the establishment and so on and so on. And I think partially it's a problem because they're not looking at things in a structural and historical lens. It's still very moralistic and personality driven. But also secondly, they're not seeing that the reality is, is that Bernie's run was enormously successful and the plates are shifting. They might not be shifting at all fast enough, um, but they are moving in the right direction. So relative to where the left has been in modern history, it was a really important performance and really good. And it's important also, you know, that in some ways politics is <laughs> not to be too Trumpian, but there is some reality creation to it. So we have to come out and kind of claim it as a victory and frame it in those terms um, because, you know, others can in some ways plausibly argue that it was just a repudiation of, of Trump without any broader political significance, if that makes sense. We're still kind of having mm -hmm. our inner kind of Macron versus Corbyn mm -hmm. argument here, and we need to just assert our evidence and, you know, I, I, we can win it on the merits, but we also just need to, you know, build our own narratives too as well that is part of politics. So so those seem like some some positive shifts for the for the American left. But what do you see Definitely. as the what do you see as the weaknesses in the U.S. left at the moment? Because sometimes it seems quite heavily divided over the issue of um, free speech on campus and the free free speech campus wars. Um, do you think this is a necessary battle, or is it more of a distraction? I mean, I think that the free speech on campus thing is first and foremost it's and I say like it's incredibly easy content and it's a great way to get clicks and it mostly totally doesn't matter. I think it's a, it's, it's sort of like uh, it exemplifies different parts of the debate that are really um, kind of stupid in my opinion. Uh, I, I think that, you know, obviously the right is incredibly effective at having a persecution complex and turning in garbage neo-fascist ideas into some hype sort of oppressed and marginalized ones. And they also ironically are constantly confusing uh, being deplatformed with having their free speech violated. They're completely different things. Now that said, I think that obviously there's a certain part of the campus left, which is um, hysterical. I mean, that would be the word. And I think that where to me where it stops policy wise, and then I'll get into the kind of broader implications of it. I think my only comment would be, and I think first and foremost, like people should deal with it in their own campuses, in their own communities. In some ways, it's not really any of our business, you know, and it, that's sort of an issue that should sort of be brought back to the scale of what it is, which is really not a particularly major national issue in my view. But I would suggest if I was doing advising to campus leftists, I would say, look, if these idiots come protest them, mock them, ridicule them, humiliate them, uh, but don't go to the administration and officially ask them to sort of not be there because that type, like, that's always going to end up being used against the left. And also brand-wise, it makes you look weak and like you can't defeat uh, these people. And of course, they can be defeated. I mean, Ben Shapiro 
if your life is being afraid of someone like Ben Shapiro, <laughs> you really shouldn't get out of bed in the morning. I mean, you can't be some weird little twerp who's freaked out about rap lyrics. I mean, come on, let's be serious. We, we're, we're a lot better than that. Uh, but I, I do think, you know, more uh, broadly, yeah, I mean, there's, there's conflict and division within the left. Um, and as I say, I think that there's some people who are kind of uh, maybe are still looking at things in very kind of moralistic and idealistic terms and uh, obsessed with, I mean, I love Bernie. I think Bernie is great. And I do, in fact, personally like Bernie a lot. But I think it, you know, it, it isn't, it should not be a personality thing. It should be about what he signifies, what he's tapping into and a lot mm. of the policies he's advocating and how we can, um, you know, leverage that for greater success. And I, but I, but I do have a sense that in the performance of candidates like Lee Carter, even he didn't win, but in my neighborhood in uh, Brooklyn, my friend uh, Jabari Brisport ran like a, you know, very good campaign against a horrible gentrifier hack Democrat. He won about, I think, 29% of the vote as a, a green democratic socialist, mind you. I mean, in green, I mean, even for me, the Green Party has some bad connotations, to be honest. So I do have some part of me that wants to say, like, you know, there's a, there is a lot of good content being made and there's a lot of people in real life who are just kind of getting on with it and doing important work. And then there are a lot of kind of people being idiots on Twitter and maybe people being morons on campuses, but let's not exaggerate the importance of that stuff. If, yeah, if I guess, that makes sense. yeah, I guess the, the thing is, is that uh, this sort of hysteria that you referred to on the left and everybody who's been in kind of insane Twitter arguments and seen Twitter mobs like on the go uh, will have will can bear witness to this. But it seems that the, the more that normal people um, and I use that term advisedly, like the more normal people yep. come into the left, the less this stuff matters because it doesn't matter to most people. Um, these sort of online flame wars and identitarian squabbles and this very sort of individualistic and narcissistic way of seeing the world and moralistic, as, as you said as well, um, would sort of disappear. I guess the fear is that, uh, that that sort of stuff scares away normal people before they can even get involved in, in any form of organized left politics. I had, I had a really good conversation with uh, Bree Joy um, Gray, who's a brilliant uh, writer and uh, uh, a sort of one of my regulars, along with Bashkar Sankara and some other people on my show. And we were talking about this in the postgame of, of my most recent episode about, you know, she, she did make the point that in the civil rights era, there was a lot of very conscious tactical decisions about, you know, not just the sort of notion of nonviolence, but, but there was like, you know, you're going to go get arrested and people are going to get arrested. are going to be dressed very well. And they're going to be, they're going to look very, very good in certain ways. And they're going to keep a, a certain demeanor. And, you know, she said, okay, there is an element here of respectability politics, which is obviously very problematic and something that needs to be critiqued. Um, but we were distinguishing between respectability politics and just, again, <laughs> for a socialist, I use this word a lot, but you have to be aware of the brand. And I think that, you know, the reality is that left politics and the sentiment that drives it and where it is actually moralistic or moral is that we want to radically decrease human suffering of every possible variety and live in a world that is not built on cruelty, hierarchy of an, uh, an oppression, like market or otherwise. 
And I think, yes, that if people's association with the left is that it's just a sort of like endless narcissistic exercise of, um, you know, petty squabbles, offense, and social sanctioning, it will fail. I want to say, too, though, that part of the reason that it's so important for us to monitor that in ourselves is because the right is always going to do that about us anyways. So yep. you and I, four of us, can have a perfectly, you know, conversation that would clear all of the hurdles of, like, you know, uh, but the right wing, right? Like, these are four men, <clears throat> and they're having a reasonable, historically sound conversation, and they're maybe making some off-color jokes. And they're still going to go, look at those fucking pussies. They don't want people to starve to death. What a bunch of fags. Because that's their, you know, like, that's what they do. They are constantly trying to delegitimize uh, left politics, actually through feminizing it, which plays into their own kind of games of misogyny and sexism, and making it look like a hysterical, you know, pursuit in general. So I think it's a it's a sort of double thing to be aware of because it's like, first of all, don't do that in and of itself because it's off putting um, and stupid. And secondly, they're going to come at us, you know, no matter what I, I was talking with ContraPoint. I admire her work tremendously. It's a brilliant transgender analyst here in the United States. And we talked a bit about this too. And it was like, there, there is always going to be that enormous, sort of innate bigotry that comes at you regardless. But for those people, the few people that are persuadable, they're going to be measuring, um, you know, the validity of those claims, essentially how we present themselves. And I think that the left needs to, we need to get back to being like the kind of, you know, the charismatic and the bold and not the sanctioning, freaked out and timid. It's not a good look. Absolutely. And it seems that the more confident the left gets, um, albeit from a <laughs> from a low base, um, the less this stuff seems to matter. Um, and I think when there's been even kind of moderate sort of upsurges uh, in the UK with Corbyn, for example, this stuff has sort of faded to the side. Unfortunately, it does seem to, to come back. Um, but let's actually move on to, to a different thing which we wanted to talk about, um, because you you cover a lot of foreign policy in your uh, show. And uh, I think, you know, Phil feels like an international relations scholar and, and kind of wanted to to pick your brain a little bit Uh-oh. on some of these questions. <laughs> not to set, not to set, not to set it up like that. Real, it's real, not... a real, a real expert who's going to expose me. It's not, the, it's not uh, a, it, yeah, it's not grim. a grilling. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> no, no. No, I'm, I'm, no, no, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm happy to, no, please go ahead. Well, it was, um, I mean, you mentioned Saudi Arabia earlier, and one of the things that's um, obviously connects to our, you know, connects to interest here in the UK is um, the war in Yemen and so on. But just to kind of set it up then, and to give us kind of an inside perspective on how you think if there's been any kind of foreign policy shift under Trump with regards to Saudi Arabia. Oh, I mean, if there's been a shift, if anything, it's gotten even closer. Uh, I think that, you know, obviously Obama... Uh, to be really blunt about it, and look, the deal with Iran is the great, in my view, is the greatest modern, you know, sort of diplomatic achievement that the United States has had, um, certainly in my awareness of politics in my lifetime, right? Anything post-Cold War, in my opinion. And I think that what the Obama administration did was they essentially, they knew that the Saudis were pissed off 
the Saudis worked behind the scenes and overtly, maybe even you know just as hard, maybe in some ways harder than the Israelis to kill that agreement. And I think that the administration kind of, the Obama administration in some respects gave Yemen uh, to Saudi uh, to stop their pouting. Um, under Trump, the cooperation has even increased even more. Uh, there's different, even you know, higher grades of weapons being sold to the Saudis. Uh, the refueling continues. And, you know, I think that there is obviously much deeper structural relationships. There's a ton of money uh, in, uh, through Saudi Arabia and, in fact, also through the United Arab Emirates that have, that have been dumped in Washington and have been, you know, led to this sycophantic and ridiculous coverage and ideas that, you know, MBS is some type of reformer, than, you know, the new prince in Saudi Arabia. But yeah. I also think the thing with Trump that, that we have to be real about you know, we are always, as you know, we, we get all, we do our, we sort of turn our noses up and go, you know, it's not really about, just as I was doing earlier, it's not about personality, it's about structure, blah, blah, blah. That's true. But the reality is that the Saudis knew exactly how to play this guy. And he flies to Riyadh and they put a big billboard up of his stupid face. And, you know, oh my God, these are great guys. Wow, I love the Saudis. And there you go. I mean, I, you know, it's as simple as that, you know, so so it's intensified. And also, you know, Jared has his own. I mean, the Saudis and the Trumps are quite similar. I mean, this just sort of grotesque, oligarchic uh, uh, and I would speculate inbred sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> capitalism, basically, and religious fanaticism for the masses. So you mentioned this kind of uh, personality, the structure thing. And it's interesting yeah. to me because it seems to me like, you know, there is the greater cooperation, like you say, and very clearly there was that, like, uh, ridiculous spectacle of the Trump visit to Saudi. But I wonder, because something I've noticed, um, and this is, you know, as an outside observer of U.S. politics, but also reflecting on politics here in the U.K. and seeing the increasingly, you see increasingly kind of hostile coverage, I think, of Saudi Arabia in a way that you wouldn't have seen in the past. Um, right. In terms of, it's not necessarily specific policies, but, you know, kind of stories about expatriates who get on the wrong side of law, criticisms about kind of the excess of the royal family, um, complaints about Saudi millionaires who come to London to treat it as their playground. And so it seems to me like I wonder if there is a long-term shift against the Saudis which is playing out under the surface, um, and there may be, you know, maybe that's the long term. Um, you know, long term, uh, the West is turning against Saudi Arabia, and maybe, you know, do they need them as much as they did in the past? I definitely think that there is a certain. I, I mean, I still think that there's going to be some potentially partisan breakdown around this. Although, for what it's worth, there was, you know, resolution in the House recently condemning, uh, you know, some Saudi behavior in Yemen, which had actually a lot of support. The thing, though, that I'm curious about, because I kind of remember, at least in the United States, after September 11th, there was definitely a lot of focus on amongst parts of the left and Democrats on the relationship between, you know, there was a book that came out called House of Bush, House of Saud, and there was a lot of focus on the Saudis and you know, and, and frankly, I mean, justified focus in many ways. Um, and they're, put it diplomatically, ambivalent relationship with groups like Al-Qaeda. This goes back way before Syria, obviously. I mean, it actually, in fact, goes back to the, to the, you know, to the 80s. But, 
I, it seems to me that as long as we are running a global economy on oil, and as long as there's an, a serious abundance in Saudi Arabia that can be spread around, and as long as also, if we're, and this is the part where I'll sound more realist, there are obviously a lot of you know, security arrangements and, and, and areas of cooperation that in a day-to-day bureaucratic sense, clearly Western powers rely on the Saudis for and that's, I think, the, not to justify the relationship, but I think that that's the backdoor bureaucratic reality. Um, I, you guys can correct me on this, but I read a report recently that the reason that you know Tony Blair shut down an investigation, I think it was BAE uh, bribes um, for a Saudi jet deal, was essentially that uh, Prince Bandar came to him and pretty much was like, look, we can clamp down on terrorism cooperation to the extent that we are doing it. Now, my instinct with Tony Blair is that maybe he didn't even need the threat. Maybe he was already, you know, planning on joining the board of BAE or whatever. Regardless. Oh, yeah, no, but without a doubt. I, I think, yeah, but I do think that there is an element of, and with, you know, there's, there's, that's a whole other terrain, I think, particularly when you're looking at international relations that people have to assess of, just the inbuilt day in and day out relationship. So I think it's shifting. I think, I think on the democratic or labor side, if people start turning and thinking about foreign policy, the same way they've been shifting with domestic issues, it's going to be much more difficult for, you know, a, a Democrat in 20, or I mean, even see this from Bernie, you know, in 2000, when he ran in 2016, I mean, his, he said some very brave things on foreign policy, but he did a lot of like, you know, we need to get together with Jordan and kill ISIS, which is, you know, it's not exactly an enlightened <laughs> worldview on foreign policy. <laughs> and already, you know, you've seen him in the last several months. He has said some much more kind of fully rounded critiques of U.S. militarism and foreign policy. So my sense, and I know Jeremy Corbyn is way out ahead on some of this stuff. So I, I think that, potentially Saudi and potentially Israel might become more of a partisan issue. But I, I think as long as oil runs, runs the world, there's a place for Gulf monarchies in it. It's interesting. I mean, it, it's an interesting, uh, you know, it's an interesting perspective, I guess, like you say, how that um, it might become more partisan. And I wonder if that might happen here in the UK as well. So the shift, the kind of shift against the old, against supporting the Gulf monarchies might take the form of something which has um, become something for party politics. But um, so just one final thing then, which is if you could maybe give us a bit of an insider viewpoint on the um, sustainability, I guess, of the Iran deal. So you mentioned it in your view, like um, mm. a tremendous kind of foreign policy achievement. And there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of um, talk that when Trump made the announcement that there was you know they were going to kind of cancel it outright. So how um, how solid do you think it is, in your view at least? Uh, well, I mean internationally, it's obviously totally solid. I mean that's the kind of amazing thing about it is watching. And I you know I'm not a I, I I'm very much an advocate of looking at Iran in a much more fully integrated way that people in the United States typically do. And I certainly think there's room for uh, much increasingly normalized diplomatic relations with Iran, but I'm not in any way a defender or advocate or fan 
of of uh, you know the Iranian government. But in, but and even for me, it's this kind of like. There was something like when when Obama addressed the world, even if you had one part of you that wasn't even an American chauvinist, but just didn't that just liked to have your country represented in a way that was sort of, you know, not embarrassing. The notion of watching Rouhani after Trump at the U.N. and just being like, you know, Hassan Rouhani is a superior human being to Donald Trump in every way, shape and form. and, And that's actually unsettling. And I think that that plays out. You know, in the sense that the the Europeans are, and every other uh, you know member of the P five plus one is going to continue to follow this deal, a hundred percent. Now he decertified it. Theoretically, Congress could uh, override it, recertify it itself. It was kind of a you know certification was not an actual part of the deal. It was a side thing, basically, for Congress to do this process every 90 days, I think, with the original intention of humiliating Obama or humiliating Hillary, right? Which is like, oh, you have to recertify that Iran is great every nine days, right? Like, that's how it will play out in conservative media. Uh, I think that there are some Republicans, and I say this with zero, I mean, I have I could not have a lower opinion of every member of the Republican Party, and I don't think Trump is some type of aberration. I think he's a natural fulfillment of the Republican Party, and people like Bob Corker are disgusting. Now, that being said, I do think that people like Bob Corker probably, who, by the way, is retiring, you know, they have some notion that, of course, they get that this deal is working. And, of course, they understand um, that, you know, some type of unilateral invasion of Iran would be insane. I think that Trump wants to not be in a position of doing it of, because of his own sense of ego, his own sense of, uh, you know, flapping his arms because, of course, he ranted about how it was a bad deal and blah, blah. Obviously, he had no idea what was in the deal. He has no idea what it takes. And, of course, you know, he doesn't have a fraction of the capability of Barack Obama or John Kerry. Uh, so he, that freaked him out emotionally. So I think now we're kind of in a stasis and, you know, there is a scenario, you know, obviously there is a horrific nightmare scenario amongst some people around this administration who I do think would like to potentially engage militarily with Iran. And that's an absolute nightmare. But short of that, all it's going to do is just isolate the United States and Europe will continue to increase trade with Iran. And, you know, the Saudi Israel and the United States will look like intransigent lunatics and Iran will look like an almost stabilizing force in the Middle East. And actually to the extent that people will probably start to actually not, you know, give a proper fully integrated assessment of where Iran is also in, in areas playing very destructive regional politics, very destructive regional politics itself. So, uh, but I think that that's where it leaves us. There's a small, truly horrific scenario, and short of that, it's just an own goal in the United States right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks very much for, for that contribution, Michael. That was really interesting, and it's something that we're going to come back to, and maybe we'll come back to you um, again relatively soon to chat over more issues. Thanks very much oh, for, for joining us. It's been great. I really thanks. appreciate you guys, and uh, look forward to you know having you guys doing a lot more uh, on both venues with you guys. I think you guys do a great show. Thanks so much. Definitely, yeah. And for listeners, uh, once you're done listening to your fortnightly Alpha Bunga Bunga, check out the Michael Brooks show. Michael Brooks uh, uh, show on iTunes, uh, Michael Brooks show on YouTube, or uh, Patreon slash TMBS to get the whole thing. 
There you go. There's the plug. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. All right. That's your bunga for now. We'll be back sooner than usual, though. Join us and our special guests in a couple of days for a special episode on Zimbabwe. Tell your friends, remember to subscribe. See you soon.